Well, good morning and welcome to Mount Calvary Church. I thought it'd be appropriate this morning to start. I wanted to share a couple of photos. Yesterday, six of our men worked with an organization called Servants, um, and we went to Dick and Loretta's house. Uh, they contacted 211 and got connected with a, with a ministry, which then got a hold of us. And so we got to go down and meet Dick and Loretta, uh, an older couple, a, a really sad situation. Uh, Loretta had not been out of her house in over a year uh, because of those steps. And so they had the wood and the plans for us, and we got to put this ramp together. I mostly just watched them do it, encouraged them while they did it. Um, and we finished off with a ramp. And so we were so thankful to get to serve them this way um, so they could get out of their house. I mean, she, she had not seen a doctor. Uh, and, and so we were happy to serve and to let our conduct speak to the gospel. We got to pray with them, have lunch there. Um, and so just wanted to share that. God is good. It's good to have these opportunities. And so... Um, just wanted to show that with you. We're going to be in 1 Peter 3 this morning. So if you have a Bible and can turn to 1 Peter 3. Last week, if you remember, I shared that I had been reading the story of Elizabeth Elliot, the great missionary. I mean, what a story, what an example of conduct um, that broadcasts and shares the love of Jesus. This morning, I don't want to share, I'm not going to share the, the, the story of one person, but I want to give account for the story of two people, the marriage between my papa and my granny. Um, here's a picture of my papa and my granny. Um, so in 1942, when my papa turned, his name's Char, was Charles, when he turned 18, uh, he enlisted in the army and moved, was, was put, to, put in New York City to prepare to go to fight in the war. And so he moved from Mobile to New York City, had a couple of weeks there in New York City as they, as they trained him and, and prepared to send him off across the sea to fight. And so he got to see some of New York City to go to some shows. And um, my mom loves sharing this story. So we've heard this story a lot. But one detail that, that was funny she shared with me this week was that Papa um, not only wanted to explore the city, he wanted to find someone he could write to. And so she said he went to Rockefeller, Rockefeller Center, was going ice skating, and saw a group of girls. And she said, she said, the blonde wasn't interested in Papa, but her roommate was interested. And so he started talking to Betty, who lived in New York City, and she agreed to write him while he was fighting in the war. Um, and so that's how it started Two weeks later, he shipped off across the sea. Um, they must have really liked each other because I thought this part was kind of funny. She got on a bus by herself and traveled to Mobile, Alabama to meet Papa's family. Uh, I didn't know this detail either. She was telling me that they, the family loved her so much that they were ready for them to get married. I'm like, okay, well, good decision. And so Papa's dad took my grandmother to the jewelry store to pick out the engagement ring. How about that? <laughs> and uh, she stayed there for a few weeks, came back to New York City. Three years later, Papa came home from the war to New York City, and Papa and Granny were married at the Presbyterian Church on Fifth Avenue. Here's a picture of my mom, um, the sixth of six daughters, who telling this same story, she loves to tell this story, 
to my daughter and to my two nieces. And so that's the church on Fifth Avenue. And, and so um, this is a story of love. This is a powerful picture of love. And as, as I was talking to my mom about Granny and Papa, you know, she had a lot of really positive things to say about their marriage. And, and she said, it was not perfect. And it was not easy. And there were some really tough days. There were some very deep losses. Money was short. Uh, but the six daughters will all say still to this day that Papa and Granny loved God and they loved each other. Papa worked hard. He loved Granny. He, he cared for her. Mom said that he, he never raised his voice at her. He was constantly trying to help whenever he got home from work. He would comfort her. He was gentle with her. And Granny loved Papa. He would work and work and work, and she's trying to care for these six girls. Can you imagine six girls? <laughs> and Granny did her best to care for the house, to care for the girls, to, uh, to provide for them. And so Papa and Granny loved each other. One clear sign that we still talk about of the love between Papa and Granny was what we understand now as the paper plate. So uh, greeting cards were expensive, and so instead of buying greeting cards, it is, that's a, they're a lot of money, just write a note. Well, they would take paper plates for every holiday, Valentine's Day, anniversaries, birthdays, and they would write notes to each other. And so these are kind of the iconic paper plates. We still have them, and, and uh, we love to read them. But it was just an expression of their deep love for one another. The first service was laughing at the, looking at the middle plate, um, Sweetheart, I will love you to the end and into heaven. Jean, that's my, my pop, um, Granny didn't like that message. She didn't want to think about heaven and didn't want to think about life without Papa, so she ripped up that plate, probably let him know. But what a testimony. What a legacy of love for their kids, for their grandkids, for Ashley and I, for the great-grandkids, I mean, just for, the, for their marriage to be an example to, to everyone that knew them. They loved God and they loved each other. And so this morning, what we see with First Peter, what Peter's saying is that that is, that is our story. Every one of us who are married, that all of us, our marriages are displays. They're pictures of something so much bigger. There's a picture to your kids and to your neighbors and the people that you work with, and it's a picture of the gospel of Jesus. This is what Paul says. It's mysterious. It's hard to put words to, but our marriages, the conduct, that's what we've been talking about. Our conduct is, is important, not just with government and not just with our, where we work, but our conduct's important in our marriage because our conduct speaks to something bigger than itself. And I recognize that there are those this morning here who are single. There are those that are widows. And it is our, you know, I don't mean to exclude you from this, but it is my prayer that as you hear this message and you think about the relationship between the husband and the wife, that this would become part of your, your heart as you think about what might, God might have for you in the future um, as you get married. And if you don't, that you would pray for the marriages that are in this church, that we would have conduct in our marriages that speak to the gospel. You know, and as I was reading this passage, there is a lot at stake here 
that Mount Calvary, that, that we get this right. First Peter, in our passage in chapter 3, he's going to say that the conduct that, that is fitting and right in marriage has the power to win people to the gospel. Your unbelieving spouse can be won to the gospel if we conduct ourselves in a way that is mindful for the, for the instructions and the plan that God has laid out. So this is, this is important. And then in verse 7, he's going to say that, that if our conduct in marriage is sinful and wrong, he's specifically talking to the husbands in verse 7, he says, then your prayers will be hindered. Okay, so speaking to the importance of us really thinking about this husbands, that if you don't conduct yourselves in a godly way with your wife, then you're not going to have a meaningful connection with God the Father. And so with those two ideas, there is much at stake. And so it is my prayer as we think about this, whether you're single or you're married, that God would lead and shape our marriages, that our conduct would speak the truth of the gospel. So let's read our passage and then we'll pray. Verse one of chapter three. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry and the clothing that you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children. And if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray together. Father, it's a hard passage in a lot of ways, uh, but it speaks to a really important issue, God. And so I pray that you give us wisdom and knowledge as we interpret the passage, as we study the passage, as we examine the different elements of the passage. But God, I pray that we won't be distracted by some of the challenging parts of the passage, that we miss the force of the application of this passage. God, we ask you to speak truth into our marriages today. To the wives and to the husbands that sit in this room or those who are listening online, God, I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, that you would encourage us where we're discouraged, God, that we would be shaped by your truth from Peter to us today that our conduct in marriage might speak the gospel loudly to those all around us. So we need your help this morning. We ask for it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So as we kind of think through this passage, one of the things that, one of the first things you notice that I think is pretty unusual uh, for the Bible is that there are pretty distinct gender-specific commands in this passage. It's pretty clear. Verse one, likewise to the wives. Then we've got likewise to the husbands. Again, in verse seven, this is not typical. Typically, you don't have these gender divided commands. You don't 
Paul doesn't, when he's talking about the fruit of the Spirit, he doesn't say to the wives or to the women that you're, you're gonna grow gentleness and kindness and self-control. And then he doesn't turn to the husbands and say, you're gonna think through goodness and patience. He, he does, typically in scripture, we don't see this kind of division. When Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, he doesn't say, yeah, you guys are pretty different. I'm gonna speak to my husbands and to my men, and then I'm gonna talk to my women. No, he talks to one crowd with moral commands for everyone to listen to. And so here we see why is he speaking very specifically to husbands and wives? This is not gonna be earth shattering to you, uh, but why is he doing that here? Male, female, husbands and wives are radically different. Yeah, that's not hard to, to grasp. Um, this, isn't a, this isn't a vertical command to all people. This is, this is you as an individual, how you, follow, how you follow God. Your gender doesn't matter. This is instead, this is horizontal. How does this relationship of two very different people work together? And so this is, he, he's saying, you are very different. So, you, so you're gonna interact with each other because of that, very differently. This is how it has been from the very beginning. Genesis 2.18, the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Man, men here in the room, you needed help. You, you couldn't do everything that God, yeah, we can laugh at that. We need help. I've always, I mean, we recognize this. By yourself, you couldn't accomplish all that God wanted you to accomplish. That's why he had to make him a helper, someone who fit him. And I recognize this with, with my life. Ashley is a helper. I couldn't be a pastor without Ashley. She encourages me. When I'm discouraged, she's positive and encouraged. Where I'm weak, she's strong. We complement one another. And so, and don't, don't think this idea, sometimes we think women being the helper in this passage, is a, it's a term of weakness or it's a term of subjection. This is not the case at all with this verse where, where God says she will be a helper. Okay, I, I've shared about this before. We did a, a marriage series last spring, but I think it's important to kind of look at this again. Women being helpers, this does not speak to you being inferior. Okay, so let me show you another place where this word helper is used, and we can see, I mean, this is a strong word. This is a military word. Psalm 33, 16 the king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might, it cannot rescue. And then in verse 20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. It's the same word. So here's the picture. You are overwhelmed as an army. They are coming at you from all sides, and God sends you help. He is the help. And God has the boldness to use the same word that he uses for himself in rescuing his people. The same military strong word is the same word that he uses here in Genesis 2.18. Your wife, Eve, is a strong helper. She is perfectly 
complementary strong in your weakness. Her strengths fit into your strengths. And so God made these differences because we, we need these differences. We need these complementary strengths to work together. And so often we, we fight over our differences. We get frustrated in the differences. I mean, we're different. We're so different from our, from our spouse and how we think and how we laugh and how we love and our emotions and our inclinations. And what God is saying here is this, this is how I made it so that you could be perfectly complementary, fitting together. If you've ever played on a baseball team, you, you would see this kind of dynamic. When you play baseball, there's hundreds of different little skills that you can have to play baseball, and, and nobody can do all of them. So running the bases, pitching a curveball, throwing a ball to first base, um, hitting, catching, endurance to throw for long innings, bunting. I was a good bunter. That's, that's not exciting. I played catcher. Okay, but there's literally, I could go on and on and on about all the different types of skills that, that a baseball team needs to have. And when you're trying out for a baseball team, it's kind of, can be kind of cutthroat. You want to show the coach that you have as many skills as you have so that you can be picked on the team. And you're not excited all the time when all these other guys trying out have all these skills, but you want to show that you deserve to be on the team. But when you get on the team, something happens. No longer are you cutthroat. No longer are you trying to win out and do every skill. You, your coach will show you, here's your sweet spot. You're the catcher, or you're the first baseman, or you're going to pinch run for us, or you're going to pitch for us in the, in the bottom of the ninth. And so what happens when you get on the team, you're no longer fighting over your differences. You don't want to be in every position. You, you celebrate your teammates. You celebrate them when, when they do what their sweet spot is for the team. And here's what, here's what Peter is saying. He's saying we need to stop acting as husbands and wives like we're, we're, like we're still in the tryouts, like, like we're against each other, but we need to be on the same team. We're different but we are working towards one goal as one united person. And if you've ever been on a, on a team, when the team gets that, that you don't do everything and you don't have to do everything and you can celebrate when your team is like a team. If you've ever experienced that, it's a really special thing to have a team that is interlocked, unbreakable, working together. And th this is what Peter is saying. You are different than your spouse, but there is potential to display and conduct yourselves in a way that shows the beauty of the gospel, even in your differences. And so now Peter gets specific. So stay with me here. He says, that's kind of the big idea. We're different, but it is mysteriously beautiful in what we present to the world. But now he gets specific. Here's what wives are to do as they compliment their husbands. Here's what husbands are to do as they compliment their wives. So verse one, wives, be subject to your husbands. Okay, so this isn't easy. We've been talking about submission the last couple of weeks, talking about submitting to the government, talked about submitting in our work environments. And now Peter is saying, let's talk about submission in our marriage relationship. And he's been saying, 
your conduct in all the spheres of your life has the potential to win people to the gospel. Yet, as hard as maybe last week might have been, this is hard. This is a hard one. I remember doing a wedding years ago, and I was reading Ephesians chapter 5, wives, submit to your own husbands. And I must have paused after I read the verse in Ephesians 5, and the mother of the groom sitting right here on the front row literally laughed out loud. She thought I was joking. I'm like, this is awkward. I'm not joking. Let's talk about this because she couldn't understand the concept of submission to someone else. It made for a fun wedding. But let's talk about it. Okay, this isn't, this isn't easy. And a lot of like how she looked at it, a lot of we look at it. Is this a joke? I mean, how can this apply to us today? How does this make sense? And so I think it's worthwhile for us to really think through what does this actually mean? So let me share a few things that this doesn't mean because I think the church, specifically the church, has gotten this way wrong um, with some pretty damaging effects. So what does it, what does it not mean? Submission does not mean subjugation. Nowhere in Scripture are you commanded, anyone commanded, to force someone to sub, be subjugated under you. This is reflexive. This is what the Greek says is reflexive. You, the, the wives, are choosing for themselves, not under coercion or from forcefulness of someone else. They are choosing for themselves to submit and put themselves underneath their children and their husbands. So this isn't slavery. This, isn't, this, that, this is not what it is. And I've already said this. It's not inferiority. This does, this does not mean that, that wives are lesser than, than their husbands or anyone else. What they are doing to compliment their husband is just, it's just different, but it has nothing to do with the essence of the, the equality of who they are. So how can I say that? How do we know that? How, well, Jesus submitted to the Father. Jesus in his ministry all the time was saying, not my will, your will be done. I submit to the will of the Father. And so if Jesus can submit to the will of the Father, and we believe the Trinity here where Jesus and the Father are one and equal, distinct in what they do, but if Jesus can submit and still be fully God, then submission does not mean inequality, okay? So last week, if, if you remember last week, I said at some, near the end of the sermon, I said we were talking about submitting to the emperor, but I said but to step back, we, we've got to step back and get a theology of this because there are times where you have to use wisdom about when not to submit. Do you remember that? I shouldn't ask that question. We did talk about it. In other words, you don't just submit to the emperor all the time, but there are scriptural examples about when you say, no, I will follow king, the king of kings, and not the emperor or the president or whoever it may be. So I want to do that here for this as well. There are times, and we have to talk about this. The answer isn't wives submit to your husbands all the time, no matter what, because that's how it is. No, there are scriptural examples that tell wives, that teach wives that there are times for you not to submit to your husbands. 
So let's, let's just look at just a couple of these ideas. We gotta get moving here. Peter, in, in this passage here in chapter three, talks about Abraham and Sarah. In verse six, he says, Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Not that you're uh, tempted to do this, wife, but don't call your husband's Lord, okay? You're definitely not tempted to do that. But, but this, is not, this is not inequality again, okay? This is, that was respect. This was a, way, a very common way in the Old Testament to show respect and dignity and honor to someone who was in a leadership position, okay? So what's interesting about Abraham and Sarah, so like you wanna go look up where did that happen? Well, there's a couple examples. I think the best example of, of Sarah submitting and respecting her husband would be in Genesis 12. I mean, can you imagine uh, when, when Abraham came home after God told him, it's time to move, and I want, you to take, I, want to, I want you to take your family, and it's time to go. And he goes home and tells Sarah, it's, we're leaving. She's like, well, where are we headed? We don't know where we're headed. We're just going. But this is a really good example of, of spiritual submission. She's saying, I will follow you, Abraham. I will go, and I will do as you seek to lead our family to honor God. Okay, so that's a good example of submission. But it's interesting because that's not how Sarah always is with Abraham. So this is kind of the point I'm trying to get to. That's a great example of Sarah saying, I will follow your, you, God's leading you, and I'm your wife, and I will go with you. That's a positive example. But there's also examples with Sarah where she doesn't always do that. Here's a really good one. Genesis 21, 9 through 12. I can't, I don't have time to go into the whole backstory, but Abraham and Hagar had a son, Okay. Ishmael. And then Sarah and Abraham had a son, Isaac. Isaac was the promised the promise son, the, the son that would bring the blessing, the future blessing to Israel and to the world. Well, Abraham, or I'm sorry, Hagar's son, and Hagar was not treating Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac very well. And so Sarah sees this. And Sarah says, uh, Abraham, this is not right. Your son, Isaac, is the promised son, and they are treating him poorly. And she says to Abraham in Genesis 21, we need to, we need to send them off because of what they're doing to your son. And, and Abraham says to her in verse 12, that he doesn't think it's a very good idea. Then God says to him, God says this, he says, whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. So she's not submitting to Abraham there. She's confronting, just, just notice this. She's confronting Abraham, saying, what you're doing to your son Isaac is wrong and you need to change the situation. Okay, so this would be an example of when you, you don't always submit to your husband. Okay, so let me be really clear here. If your husband is asking you to sin or to be a part of sin, that's a really good example of something you don't just blindly submit to and follow. This is, this is something we see with Sarah and Abraham. You know, how about an example of with Sarah where she should have spoken up when she lied to Abimelech, when he lied to Abimelech about who Sarah was? She should not have gone through with that. She shouldn't have said, well, He's my husband, and I'm going to take part of this sin. No, what she should have said was, I will not take part of your sin. I submit 
to the king of kings and not to my husband when he is leading me to sin. And so again, I'm not trying to be too strong with this. I'm saying it takes wisdom. It takes wisdom about gauging how to follow this command in 1 Peter with all the examples of Scripture. Let me give you just one more idea. Another example of when wives should not submit to their husbands blindly following is when there is abuse in the relationship. Okay, and this is very sad. It's very sad to me. It's very sad to me that the church has twisted this passage, this passage, 1 Peter 3, twisted it to use it so that wives would stay in abusive relationships to the detriment of themselves and to the detriment of their kids. I do not think that this passage applies to that situation. Confront your husband lovingly, respectfully, Talk to them about their sin. But God has provided ways for wives and for kids to get up out of the situation. It, may be calling the, it might be talking to the church. It, it might be calling the police. I don't know. I, I'm just saying there, there's a time to submit and there's a time not to submit. And when the, the betterment of your children because of abuse is at stake, you, you need to not, well, I just can't do anything. This is where God has me. no. Call the authority that's above your husband's authority. Confront them. Maybe you have to separate. You, 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 we can't be okay with this. And I know that's heavy, uh, but I, it does, it's painful to see how the church, I believe the church has gotten this wrong. Not this church necessarily, but the church. Um, and, and you see it generations down. You see it affects generations when you stay in an abusive situation because this is not the call of leadership for men. And so, we got to move on. What does it mean to submit? What does it really mean to submit? So those are, that's what it isn't, what it's not. It's not just sitting quietly when really awful things are happening or there's sin involved. What does it actually mean? It's a military word. It's a military word that says, I will not do what I want to do. I give up my individual rights for the common good. I won't, in, in the military, I don't sleep when I want to sleep. I don't eat when I want to eat. I don't march when I want to march. I don't dress when I want to get dressed. In the military, it's I will submit what I want to do for the good of our company, for the good of our, our soldiers. And otherwise, if we don't do this, if we don't live this way, we will be in grave danger. So what does it mean to submit? The wife saying, I put my rights underneath my husband so that I can serve and care for him and my children. And I do it in my own volition because I want to. Look at how 1 Peter kind of modifies this idea of submission. So let's get back to our passage here, verse 1 through 7. So he says right there in verse 1, be subject to your own husbands. But then he's going to kind of explain it a little more. And I think it helps us kind of understand what does it mean. So I put in yellow some of the adjectives that describe this. First, respectful and pure conduct. Show your husband's respect. So what does this mean? It means you're not nitpicking the things that he does wrong, but you are verbally appreciating and affirming what he does right. 
Okay, what does it mean to respect your husband? One more time. It's not calling out all the things he's done wrong, does wrong. Okay, there's, there's some of those. He does wrong things. We get it. But respect is, I will appreciate and affirm the things that he does right. I will verbally tell him what I appreciate about him. Honey, thank you for getting up to go to work. You work hard and you do this for our family and we don't have a choice, but you do it and you do it so well. Honey, thank you for loving the kids. Thank you for spending time with the kids. Thank you for spending time with me. Thanks for helping me in the kitchen. Thanks for helping me with do these things or this thing or whatever it may be. Respect is showing them verbally, not all the things he does wrong, but it's I will focus and verbalize the things that he does right. Be gentle and quiet. Verse three talks about this. He says, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, putting on gold jewelry, but internal, the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. He's not saying you can't talk. He's not saying, he is not saying you can't spend 45 minutes getting ready in the morning. He's not saying you, you can't have nice clothing. He's not, saying, he's not saying any of that. He's saying your focus should be on your gentle and quietness. Your, your cornerstone as a wife is not your exterior and how you look. That's not, that's not central to your relationship. What's central to your relationship is being gentle and quiet. Now, again, there's, what, is, what does that mean? It doesn't mean you can't say anything. Again, Sarah's the example Speak up if you need to speak up. If he's in la-la land, kind of not sure what's going on, speak up and tell him. Gentle and quiet means, it, when, when these two words are together in the New Testament, the picture is you are to be meek. To be meek is to say, I will not assert myself over other people. It means their needs before my needs. It means I will not be pushy or self-assertive, but I will willingly care and serve. And so in this context, Peter is saying, don't focus on the exterior, but focus on being meek, not being self-assertive, but loving and serving my husband and my family. Now let's get to the husbands. We, we gotta, we're gonna go a little long here. Gotta talk to my husbands. We get one verse we get one verse, husbands, and so we, we really got to zero in on this, okay? Verse seven, husbands, likewise husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Two things here, husbands. Husbands, love your wives, lead your wife by that first phrase in verse seven, knowing by knowing who she is. It says, Live with your wives in an understanding way. I mean, this was kind of mind-blowing to me. I, I've never really focused too much on that phrase. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Know your wife. You know, the world says, you can't know your wife. You're never gonna understand your wife. Look how different we are. And it's like, no. Well, what is Peter saying? You can know your wife. Seek to really understand her. Okay, my, my wives, you can give me plenty of amens here, okay? There is a big difference. There is a big difference between hearing your wife and actively listening to your wife, okay? What Peter is saying, you have to understand her. 
You're not just coexisting, but you are engaging her and listening to her. You're learning about her, and you, you truly know her. Why? So that you can serve and care for her. You know her likes. You know her dislikes. You know her weaknesses. You know her strengths. And so you're, you're understanding her so that you can care for her and serve her and lead her. And it's it's funny, Ashley's not in this service. She was in the first service. It's, we can just kind of smile because she knows I'm really bad at this. And here I am preaching about it. That I, that often, and you've probably, if you've talked to me before, you've probably thought this about me. It's okay, I'm confessing my sin here. That I'm not good at focusing all the time. And so if you've talked to me before and you see me kind of like, and you're like, is he listening to me? Does he care about me? Like, what's our pastor doing? Well, It is hard for me to focus sometimes. It's hard for me to engage sometimes. But here's what Peter is saying. Listen to understand so that you can serve your wife. The second thing, honor your wife. Honor your wife. Now, the weaker vessel phrase, I know that may cause you to get a little defensive, but it shouldn't. It's just saying women are different, the wives are different than husbands. And it may, it may mean that it's talking about physically they're different. It could, it could refer to in the culture, women were viewed as much weaker. The women in this culture couldn't do anything. But I, I really think the emphasis, the emphasis is, is you don't treat her as weaker. You don't treat her like the culture's treating her. You, this, this word has really convicted me. You honor your wife. You know, this is another military word. Submit, that's a military word. Honor is a a military word. You are to revere your wife as one who outranks you. That's what the word is. You honor someone for their position and for their value. You serve them and you care for them. You honor them for the value that they have. So husbands, you protect your wife and you don't manipulate your wife, and you don't name call your wife, and you don't bully your wife, you don't demand, and you don't threaten, and you don't talk down to your wife. That's, that's the opposite of honoring your wife. That's the opposite. And I don't, I don't get how we've, how we've gotten to this point with this passage here. Well, submit, submit, no, no honor your wife. She outranks you, and so you better treat her with complete respect and value as the daughter of the king of kings. And so this should guide our behavior. And so this is, this is my prayer for us, for those who are married here, is that husbands, we would lead and love our families as we lead them to the service of our king that we would create an environment in our, in our homes and in our, in our marriages and in our families where we know our wives and we create an environment where our wives will, will thrive with their gifts and their abilities. And wives, my prayer is that we would, you would love and encourage and affirm your husbands. They don't have everything right. They don't, they don't do it all right, but that you would be verbal about showing him the respect because what he's doing is he leads your family. So we've always missed Granny and Papa. So Papa passed away 10 years ago. Granny passed away six years ago. And, and it's hard for the whole family. But we've learned as, as I've kind of 
walked through this with, our, with, with my mom, it's especially hard for, for the daughters, like to lose a parent. And maybe you've, ex, you've experienced that um, still. That was 10 years ago. And I still remember it. Six years ago, I still remember it. This last Christmas, Ashley decided to do something pretty thoughtful for my mom, who was, is the youngest of the six girls. She took one of those paper plates. She took it to a sign maker here in Lancaster. And one of the famous lines, she had them transpose that line from that plate with his handwriting and transposed it to a wooden sign to give to my mom. And so this was the picture of my mom on Christmas morning. I love you more every day. So that when they walk by that sign, when my mom or my dad walk past that sign, or when we visit and we see that sign, this is, this is a display. This is a picture of the power of the love between husband and wife. And it is a testimony to all of us. But now I want you to imagine, okay, all of you here who are married, that there's gonna be a day, a Christmas morning, you wake up, okay, and your kids give you a sign. And there's one line that your kids can put on that sign. What I want you to consider is, what is that line that captures my marriage? Because your kids are watching, our na- your neighbors are watching, the world is watching, and it is our conduct in our marriage. One line, what, is it, what does it say about your marriage? Does it say bitter to the end? Unwilling to take a step, unwilling to reconcile and to make things right, at, at odds with each other, always fighting with each other, or what does it say? Love God and they love each other. Faithful, kind, serving one another. What, what's your line? My prayer is that our conduct in our marriages would proclaim the gospel of Jesus. See your sin. We're, we're really good seeing our spouse's sin. See your own sin. As we think about this and you think about your marriage and your relationship, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit would reveal it to you and that we wouldn't be defensive, we wouldn't be prideful, but that we would own it. Because in the truth of the gospel, the power of the Holy Spirit isn't that he just shows us our sin, even sin that we've lived in in marriage for decades. But what's so great about the work of the Spirit is he doesn't just reveal it, but he gives you the grace to overcome it. And you can overcome it. There's grace and there's hope no matter where you are. See your sin, confess your sin, and walk in the light. Let's pray. Father, this is my prayer for myself. I pray that as a husband, I would love and serve and care for my wife in a way that my kids see you. And God, I pray for these marriages here. I know that there are marriages that struggle It is hard. Marriage is extremely difficult. But God, I pray that you would show us our sin, that we would confess it and own it. And I pray that you would rescue us, that you would transform us, that we can love our spouse in a supernatural, supernatural way. And so God, I pray that as we sing this last song, God, we do, we need you. We need your help. 
left to ourselves, we will continue in our sin over and over and over again. But in you, with your help and the power of your truth, with this, the Holy Spirit, we can be transformed. And so we pray, God, that you rescue marriages, you change marriages, that you would use the marriages here in this room. And for those who are listening, use these marriages to proclaim the truth of the gospel. It's in your name we pray. Amen.